This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Larry Anderson. Larry Anderson, card number 342, pitcher, Houston Astros. Okay, Larry Anderson. Before we get to Larry, we do have some follow-up on last week's episode about Mike Lavalier. One of the reasons why I picked Mike Lavalier was an article that I found from 2017 about Spanky cooking crepes. (laughs) And the article was, Spanky serves up crepes downtown. (laughs) And it has a video of Mike Lavalier making crepes as the title would lead you to believe. Mike, Le- Mike Spanky Lavalier serves up dessert and savory crepes on Wednesdays at Jennings Downtown Provisions starting at 4 p.m. And he has a crepes by Spanky apron that he was wearing. He was doing this in Bradenton, Florida during spring training. I don't know if this was a cynical ploy by the downtown Jennings provision to draw in Pirates fans in Bradenton, Florida during spring training, or if Spanky just has a love of the crepe game. I don't know what led Spanky to believe that he was a crepe man. No idea. But the video that we've got here shows that he's he's got pretty good technique with chocolate and ricotta cheese that he's putting in there, or some other kind of sweet cheese. David, if you had a creative writing class and you said write the first line in five words of the great american novel you could do a lot worse than spanky serves up crepes downtown matt i think my last experience with crepes was in steve jeltz's hometown of paris france Mm. and a a crepe man yelled at me Mm. because i didn't have a small enough bill I don't oh. think that Spanky Lavalier would yell at you if you had a credit card, possibly, that you were trying to pay for crepes with. I can't see him yelling at you. So I fully endorse Mike Spanky Lavalier's crepes, downtown crepes. And I hope that they're still in business now, five years later. I do, too. And if listeners, if you have any information on the current status of crepes by Spanky. Spank crepes. Gross. <laughs> crepes by Spanky. You can send them to us. Our email address is 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. David, we have one more item I see in the queue about our search for the next mascot for the 1988tops podcast. Yes, thank you to best fan in baseball, Jeff, on Twitter, friend of the show who brought to our attention a curling puck mascot. What is this thing called? Curling stone? Yeah, it's a curling stone mascot of curling canada canada of course is a powerhouse in world curling often olympic and world champions the men's and women's teams also mixed doubles teams curling is a very big sport in canada and really has upped the game of mascots worldwide with their mascot slider if you imagine a canadian mountain man who, instead of a normal head, had a curling stone as his head, but was wearing a plaid flannel shirt with a maple leaf on the front and jeans and curling shoes. You've pretty much imagined like the epitome of curling Canada, and that's what makes him a perfect mascot. He looks pretty great. I think 
if that was a real curling stone on his head, he might topple over. I'm glad that it's a plush that makes it more huggable as well, I'm sure, for all the, yeah. the children curling fans. We learned from the movie Jerry Maguire that a human head weighs eight pounds, right? But a curling stone weighs 32 pounds. So Slider here has got to have some incredible neck strength. So thank you, Curling Canada, and we'll look out for Slider the next time the Scotties or the Briar are going on. But now let's go to Larry Anderson. And why are we talking about Larry today? As we suggested last week, we are behind on Astros cards. The Astros are underrepresented thus far in the 1988 Tops podcast. This wasn't really a request, but rather Larry Anderson's name came up in reference to one of our favorite old episodes. Friend of the show at UDAC 1990 was going through old episodes and asked if Charlie Kerfeld's pranks were an inspiration for Larry Anderson, who was quite a prankster himself. But it turns out that Larry was the OG prankster mm. and possibly led to Charlie's prank-filled lifestyle. Larry was also an amateur philosopher. He had a long career, most of his success coming after the age of 30. And he was involved in a trade that one of the teams involved would probably like to take back. A really interesting career and an interesting guy. He has a Sabre bio by Malcolm Allen who has done a whole bunch of them, including Brady Anderson, Harold Baines, and we use the Floyd Rayford bio. So thanks again, Malcolm, for your work on that Sabre bio. Excellent. Well, let's go to the front of 342. And we have Larry Anderson at the Jay Baller Memorial Park somewhere in parts unknown. He is looking off into the distance and directly into your soul as he is, has this photo taken of him. He's wearing the dark blue... Astros cap with the star and H on it. That looks, that's a very nice looking cap. Do you have that in your collection, David? Not yet. Not yet. That's a very, very good one. I know you're a big fan of local H, so you could, maybe that hat could represent the Astros and, and local H. And then for the top, this is a training top, but he also has a prominent chain, which we don't normally see on these cards. He's also clean cut except for the, a brilliant blonde mustache. That's a Phil Garner-esque mustache. There is some good mustache work done by the Astros in the 80s. Larry standing in front of ominous dark skies and a construction site behind him. He he looks like a guy you might meet at a gas station. Yeah, who has some strong feelings about things. <laughs> yes. He looks mad. And yeah. Larry Anderson comes across in a lot of interviews as a strange and fun guy. I say strange in the best way. Strange like a weird dad kind of strange. I'm allowed to say that as a weird dad. <laughs> well, it's true. You are. I think what is very off-putting about this pose is that it's a close-in headshot, but he's not looking at the camera. He's looking off slightly and... It doesn't really work that well because we can see too close into his face. Like you can see every wrinkle in his, you know, around his eyes. Like every, you can see his pores almost. This picture is so close in on his face. You can see the eyebrows that shouldn't be there. Because the camera flash is so bright, his also his pupils have shrunken very small. So it's it's not flattering. Let's just say that. I do like the very thin gold chain. I think that's a nice accessory. 
Now let's go to the back of 342 where you have Larry Anderson, 6'3", 205, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by Cleveland in the seventh round of 1971. Born May 6, 1953 in Portland, Oregon, with a home in Redmond, Washington. Larry was born in Portland, and he was either born deaf in his right ear or lost his hearing when he was young due to the measles. Larry said he sometimes has trouble hearing something that's far away if somebody's yelling from far away, hey, Larry. But for the most part, his left ear compensates for the right. And I didn't find a lot about his whether or not he struggled with that. But that is a condition that he has, that he is deaf in his right ear. His father, Dale, was a pilot from Oregon. Dale loved baseball, but as a youngster, he had to work through high school and never had a chance to play. He spent a lot of time with Larry and bragged to his fellow pilots about his son's skills, spent a lot of time playing baseball with his son and helping him hone those skills. When Larry was 13, however, his father was flying a Fairchild F-27 prop jet plane in a heavy snowstorm, and the plane crashed into Stuckel Mountain, killing Dale and three others on board. Young Larry was devastated. He said that he felt like he was in limbo, and he kept waiting for his father to walk through the door. He grew closer to his mother and his older sister, and he used sports as an outlet. The family moved to Bellevue, Washington, where Larry went to high school. At the time that they moved there, Bellevue was going through a population boom, And it grew from 13,000 to 61,000 by 1970 and is now up over 150,000 people. A garage in Bellevue, Washington is the birthplace of Amazon. Larry went to Interlake High School, which opened in 1968, when Larry was starting his sophomore year. Other alumni include John Olerud, Nancy Wilson of Hart, but not Ann Wilson. Ann Wilson was older and Interlake wasn't open yet, so she went to another high school in Bellevue. Jim Mora not the one who yelled about the playoffs, but his son, also Jim Mora, who's also been an NFL head coach and is currently the head coach at UConn, and Chuck Swirsky, who's the Bulls radio play-by-play man. Larry was a three-sport athlete at Interlake. In three years, he helped the Saints win three football championships, two basketball championships, and one baseball championship. He was offered a scholarship to play baseball and football at the University of Oregon, He didn't go forward with basketball because he was not as good at it as baseball. And he didn't go through with football because he said, I was too skinny to get knocked around. He was 6'3", 177. He knew that he wouldn't last on a football field at the University of Oregon. He also got drafted by Cleveland in the seventh round of the 1971 draft. He said, my true love was being on a dirt hill, 60 feet, six inches from a competitor holding a wooden stick and trying to make me look bad. And so he chose baseball, and the $10,000 bonus didn't hurt either. He was signed by Lloyd Christopher, who was born in 1919. Lloyd and his brother Russ were both pro baseball players. Russ was an all-star pitcher for the Athletics. Lloyd was a left fielder for part of two seasons in the 1940s for the Red Sox, Cubs, and White Sox, appearing in 16 games, but appeared in over 1,600 minor league games. As a scout, he worked for Cleveland, Cincinnati, Oakland, the Angels, and Expos. He's credited with signing players like Eck, Dennis Eckersley, Carney Lansford, and Keith Comstock, and he passed away in 1991. Larry started his professional journey first at single-A Reno, where he had an ERA of 6.75 in seven appearances and was promptly sent down to rookie ball. He played better there and got another chance at Reno in 1972, where he went 4-14, and 14, 
with a 6.53 ERA. Surprisingly, he was still around for 1973. You'd think that maybe they would have pulled the plug at some point, but I guess they saw something. He, Even though he was giving up a lot of hits and home runs, but that next year he improved to 10-8 and eight with a 3.95 ERA, cutting his home runs from 1.5 for every nine innings to 0.5 every nine innings. A big improvement. Eckersley was his teammate on Reno in 1973, who led the team with 12 wins. He didn't spend nearly as many years in the minors as Anderson did. Both players earned call-ups to San Antonio, the next step up. Eck went 14-3, and Anderson 10-6 and with nine complete games, including a no-hitter. But Anderson wasn't overpowering, 3.4 strikeouts per nine innings. He was getting better at keeping home runs down and didn't walk many batters. He got called up to AAA, Oklahoma City, in 1975. His ERA ticks up a little bit, 4.2. His whip was around 1.5. He went 10-11 and 11 with 10 complete games. And he earned a call-up, which is kind of surprising. He wasn't an overpowering AAA pitcher. And this was the first of a few false starts in Major League Baseball. His first inning, he was at home against Detroit, and he was perfect. Three up, three down. Second appearance, not quite perfect. Three runs in 2.2 innings. He ended the season with three appearances, 4.76 ERA. And we see on the back of the card, the first four lines on this card are non-consecutive years, 75, 77, 79, 81. He didn't make it back to Major League Baseball until 1977. His confidence was totally shot at AAA. His ERA was up near 13. He gets sent back down to double A, both for his performance and Larry said for his attitude as well. He had a a bad attitude that year. At double A, he got his confidence back. He pitched well. And that winter, he also spent part of the offseason helping out at a juvenile offender group home in Arizona. And he said, when you throw things like a positive attitude at kids, it comes right back at you like you're looking in a mirror. He kind of used that to, to help out his own attitude, to help him gain focus. In 1977, Cleveland decided Larry should become a relief pitcher instead of a starter, and he answers beautifully to this calling, 1.94 ERA in 45 games at Toledo, and earns another call-up in August, where he pitched well in 11 games. But it wasn't enough. He went back to the minors in 1978 and didn't make it back to the big leagues until 1979. He pitched well in relief for Cleveland's AAA clubs, both at Portland and Tacoma, But then when he finally did get called up at the end of 1979, he got roughed up. That line on the card for 1979 is pretty sad. Eight games, 17 innings pitched, 7.41 ERA. So 14 earned runs and 17 innings pitched. It was a horrific year for him on the stat sheet. But David, he did find a silver lining. That year, he and a teammate went to visit Sparky Lyle. And Sparky introduced them to the joy of owning a conehead mask and this would add to larry's goofy dad persona over the next few years he took this conehead prosthetic with him from team to team and if you look at the picture of this this is a nightmare mask yeah they like like all really funny guys at wild and crazy guys let's say in the late 70s early 80s they got to make sure you've got your saturday night live comedy props. Larry said that the initial mask Sparky Lyle bought it at Disney. I don't 
no, no. don't I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> but I guess at the time, like having unlicensed conehead masks <laughs> maybe I, makes sense. I, I wanna... you can't really like the the mouth on this thing doesn't connect right. It looks like a like a weird fish. It's kind of lumpy at the top of it. It's a very it's not a great mask. I have to admit, David, I've seen a mask like this in pictures from this same time period. Recently, my parents and I have had a chance to look through their photo albums from when they met in college at Penn State University and State College, PA. And they went to a Halloween party. And there is a couple wearing those masks. It looks very similar I'm so, just glad that you didn't say that it was your parents. It wasn't my parents. My parents were not wearing the cone head masks. I don't think. I'm not, at least if so, I'm not going to admit to that. <laughs> but there was someone at that party, so I've seen that. There, I also will say that everyone in the late 70s, they look, looked awesome. It looked like a lot of fun. This mask traveled with Larry throughout the 70s and 80s. Almost immediately upon receipt of, the, of this cone head mask, he got traded to Pittsburgh. He's 26, seemed like a career AAA pitcher, and he actually never went to Pittsburgh. He played for Portland, their AAA affiliate, and this is the second time that he played for Portland for a second team. So Portland had been the Cleveland AAA affiliate, now they were the Pittsburgh AAA affiliate. In 22 major league appearances for Cleveland, he had a 5.4 ERA. He said of his time with Cleveland, Cleveland at the time was a dismal, negative, terrible place to play. I'm not talking about the city. The stadium was run down. It was ugly. It was like puke yellow. And the organization left a lot to be desired. Other than that, it was perfect. Uh, yes. Very good dad humor. The second time around, though, playing for Portland for Pittsburgh's AAA affiliate. He ended up staying in the Pacific Northwest. He's from the Pacific Northwest. He gets traded to Seattle. But to go from the 1979 world champ pirates where he was at he was at their triple a team in 1980 that's probably a good experience where you're thinking if i get called up i'm going to be on a good team to the mariners and the mariners are never a good team except in 2022 they're pretty good right now but there's a good side to this for larry there's less competition for professional experience so he spends 1981 full time in the majors as much as the strike will allow but he rewarded Seattle with a great season. He had a 147 ERA plus, which was 12th best among pitchers with more than 35 games. He had had three false starts at this point. He's 28. This is first full season, so we should probably like just have a couple more seasons, call it a day. Nope. He plays 13 more seasons after this. So buckle up. 1982, aside from kind of a bad year on the mound, an ERA at right around six. He also had an incident that earned him a nickname. In a visit to Chicago, Seattle's manager, Renee Latchman, arrives in his hotel room to find all of the lights don't work. This is like a nightmare similar to the Conehead mask. This is a horror movie. All of the lights are out. All of the furniture is gone or moved. It had all been piled up in the bathroom. So he shows up in this totally empty hotel room. Lights won't turn on. He opens the toilet and finds that someone has mixed 16 boxes of cherry jello with ice and allowed it to settle. 
There's two bathrooms. They did it to both toilets. Both of them are full of jello. He goes to the phone. He's trying to call down to reception. They're saying, hello, hello. He can hear them, but they can't hear him because the mouthpiece has been disconnected. Latchman finally just goes down to reception, tells him what's going on. He is steamed. He's so mad. The next day, he threatens to call the FBI. He's going to fingerprint the whole team, give lie detector tests. It turns into a scandal. It shows up in newspapers. There's newspaper headlines about the Jello incident. And it also got in the newspapers because Latchman accused former Mariner and current White Sox at the time, Tom Pachorik, of being part of this scheme. Pachorik's mom calls Renee Latchman and says that that is not a nice thing to accuse Tom of doing. And he is a good kid. He would never do something like that. So it's in the newspapers. It's all over the place. Renee Latchman's so angry. He's embarrassed. The end of the year, there's a party and they play a what's my line style game with three guys who have paper bags over their heads. And at the end, it is revealed that Larry, Richie Zisk, and Joe Simpson were the culprits. So this earns Larry the nickname Mr. Jello. And if we'll recall, this reputation that Larry had perhaps inspired Charlie Kerfeld's contract request for 37 boxes of orange jello, which corresponded, of course, with his number 37 and the orange that used to be on the Astros uniforms. Kerfeld said, I wanted the jello so. Larry Anderson and I could pull a prank on some coach or unsuspecting reporter this season when they least expect it. They might find some orange jello in their toilet or the whirlpool or something. So that jello prank gets under Latchman's skin, and Larry's play didn't help him get back in the manager's good graces. Batter slugged 543 against Anderson, and he finished with a 599 ERA in 37 outings. 37. It all goes back to Charlie Kerfeld. Mm-hmm. He spent some time in AAA rehabbing a shoulder injury. Before the 1983 season, Latchman told Larry that he's going to AAA, and Larry says, why? And Latchman tells him, you're not good enough. So he gets loaned out to the Phillies and plays for their AAA team. And guess where that is? Portland. Going back to Portland. Larry said, my dream growing up was I want to pitch for the Portland Beavers. Well, it came true, and then it came true again, and then it came true again. (laughs) And I'm like, enough of that dream. (laughs) But he pitched well, and that leads to a fun fact on the bottom of the card that Larry led Pacific Coast League with 25 saves at Portland in 1978 and 22 saves at Portland in 1983. He saved 22 games, had a 2.05 ERA in 52 games, and the loan worked. The Phillies purchased his contract and called him up to the Wheeze Kids. This team had Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez. They're all around 40 years old, but they're playing great. And Larry walks into the clubhouse, and he said it was like being in baseball heaven. I just walked around in awe of those guys. And he was an important part of that Phillies team in their run to the NL East title. 2.39 ERA in 17 games. He gave up no home runs in 26 innings. He didn't pitch in the NLCS, but he did get to pitch in the World Series. He pitched four innings, gave up one run in the Phillies series loss to the Orioles. But what a difference a year makes. From the seller to the World Series, Larry said, I wouldn't let somebody convince me that I wasn't good enough. The next few years, the Phillies fell off. In 1984, they were 500, but 
Anderson was still very effective, 2.38 ERA over 64 appearances. And that included a record for Phillies relievers, 32 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings. In 1985, his walks and his hits ticked up a little bit, as did his ERA. It was over four. And in the offseason, the Phillies picked up a couple new bullpen arms in Steve Bedrosian and Tom Hume to go along with Kent Tocolvi and Larry. And so in 1985, Larry and the Phillies start a little slow. And with those other veteran bullpen arms, they decided they wanted to cut some salary and they released Larry. He's looking for a new team and he says, I want to pitch in a ballpark that has high grass and is 400 feet down each foul line where the wind is always blowing hard in the batter's face. He didn't get all of that. In fact, he didn't even get grass or wind. He moved to the Astrodome. He signed with the Astros. It's a real good pitcher's park, so he at least got that part of it. Not going to be a ton of home runs. Now it's 1986. He's joining the Astros. His first year in town, he's on a contender. He would have five solid seasons in Houston. During his time there, he had a 141 ERA+. plus. So just really effective in his time in Houston. In 86, he pitches in 38 games in ERA under three as Houston wins the NL West. And Larry celebrated in the only way he knew how, and that was to get out the Conehead masks and put them on with Charlie Kerfeld and Dave Smith. The Conehead mask looks better with this ridiculous Astros jersey. The sunglasses do help. Charlie Kerfeld is holding two 12-ounce beers in his hand. He looks like he's about to chug both those beers. I wouldn't put it past him. He's a large man. Bet he did. This is a great photo. Three cone heads. This is a great photo of baseball history right here. Anderson threw five scoreless innings in two NLCS appearances against the Mets. In game six, Larry did his job. He pitched a hitless 11th, 12th, and 13th inning but the Astros were knocked out of that series in the 16th inning. In 1987, the Astros couldn't replicate their National League West win, but Larry picked up some new tricks. He increased his strikeouts per nine from five to 8.3. He did that by adding velocity to his slider. By the late part of his career, it was said that Larry had a three-pitch repertoire, slider, slider, and slider, And prior to that, he'd thrown more curves, but he learned to lean on the slider and just throw it a little bit differently each time and disguise its spin. And it led to a very big year for him. 67 games, 101 innings pitched, and 94 strikeouts. In 88, he has another solid year, 53 outings, an ERA under three. And he started to get recognized for his observational humor. There's a video from NBC's Game of the Week with Larry doing some of his one-liners. I'm Larry Anderson of Houston Astros, and I've got some questions that have been puzzling me. Was Robin Hood's mother known as Motherhood? Or why do Slim Chance and Fat Chance mean the same thing? How do you know when you're running out of invisible ink? And a personal favorite, why does sour cream have an expiration date? These are jokes. These are the good jokes. These are definitely jokes. 1989, he remains the setup man for the Astros, and at age 36, he has his best season yet. He didn't allow a run in his first 22 innings. That's 16 appearances without a run. In 37 games, he had an 0.67 ERA, holding opponents to a 172, 218, 204 slash line, and zero homers in 54 innings. 
That is how you get a slugging percentage lower than the on-base percentage. Almost never see this. His teammates knew his real value. And Jim, two silhouettes on Deshays, said, I think he is the best pitcher in baseball right now. Because he's a setup man and doesn't have the wins or saves, he doesn't get much recognition. But he finished that season with a 1.54 ERA in 60 games. The Astros finished third in the NL West, six games out of first place. 1990 was more of the same, 1.95 ERA through 50 games. On August 30th of that year, the Astros were in fifth place. The Red Sox are in first place, up by six and a half games. And they're looking for bullpen depth on their way into the playoffs after Jeff Reardon went down with an injury. And they had good depth at third base. They had Wade Boggs starting, but they had a young guy named Scott Cooper at AAA who was the heir apparent. Then at AA, they had a 22-year-old Boston board kid hitting 333 with four home runs. And Larry says, I'm coming off of two sub 2.0 ERA years. And I was like, really? That's all they got? All they got from me after the years I had was this double-A guy? The Red Sox decide to make the trade to get a bullpen arm and try to win now. And Jeff Bagwell goes the other way to Houston. He calls his Red Sox fan grandma, and she starts crying. The rest is history. (laughs) Bagwell switched to first base. The next year, jumps straight to Major League Baseball from double-A in 1991. Wins the Rookie of the Year. He's MVP by 1994. In 2005, loses to the White Sox in the World Series, hitting 125. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. Sorry, <laughs> Astros fans. But Larry upheld his end of the bargain, too, at least in the regular season. And he pitched in 15 of the Red Sox' last 30 games. He gave up only three runs in 22 innings. He has a whip under one. The Red Sox win the division on the last day of the season. They go into the playoffs to play the A's in the ALCS. Game one, Larry came in, up one nothing in the seventh inning, gave up a leadoff walk, and that runner scores. In the eighth inning, Larry again put the leadoff man on and then was taken out of the game. That runner also scored, and the Red Sox just lost it after that point. They end up losing 9-1. to one. Larry was credited with the blown save and the loss. In two other appearances in the ALCS, he didn't give up a run, but it didn't matter at this point. The Red Sox were swept, and his line for the series looks pretty bad. 0-1 with a 6.0 ERA in three appearances. Larry said, I just got plain tired in Boston. I'll never make excuses. Got to be disappointing for him. Aside from that rough series combined between Boston and Houston, Larry was one of the best relievers in baseball. 95 innings, 1.79 ERA. He's valued at 3.5 wins above replacement, which was tied with Bobby Thigpen for fourth in the major leagues among relievers. And that's the season that Bobby Thigpen set the all-time saves record. So just a huge season for Larry, and he's he's 37 years old, coming off his two best seasons. And as part of the collusion settlement, Larry is granted free agency. The Red Sox didn't think that he would be a free agent when they made the trade. So not only did they trade Jeff Bagwell for him, they trade Bagwell for one month of Larry Anderson. (laughs) We look back and with modern metrics, it looks like a bad trade. But even at the time, everybody knew that that was not a good trade. But nevertheless, Larry is 37 years old and he is on the market and he signs a big deal. The Padres signed him to a two-year, $4 million contract. He made a little more than $2 million 
dollars combined from 1987 to 1990. So this was a huge deal for him and his family. He said, it's definitely the best Christmas I've had in my life. I'm floating on clouds right now. I've been through it all. I've struggled. I've been persistent. And the last few years, I've been consistent. I feel like I've earned what I've got. And in San Diego, he was good. But as he got up in age, he did start to collect some injuries. He had a herniated disc in his neck that limited him to only 38 appearances in 1991. Although he did have a career high, 13 saves and 2.30 ERA. He also had a locker room highlight. In 1991 at Dodger Stadium, actor John Goodman the husband from Ro- Roseanne, among other things. That's how he was listed. Among in many this, other things. <laughs> he was listed as that in this article. The number of things that John Goodman has gone on to be in and do an amazing job. Recently, I've been watching the Righteous Gemstones where he is outstanding. Mm-hmm. So let's say uh, actor John Goodman, who plays the patriarch of the family in the Righteous Gemstones, visited the San Diego Padres clubhouse after a game. And Larry said... I just did what I thought was appropriate in a situation like that. I challenged him to a belching contest. So Goodman chugs a beer, rips a giant burp. Anderson follows with a sound that, quote, reverberated throughout the clubhouse, after which John Goodman bowed his head in tribute and walked out of the clubhouse. No injuries were reported in that contest, but Anderson was limited to only 34 games in 1992, and became a free agent. As he was nearing 40 years old, teams were kind of nervous about his durability. So he returned to the Phillies with a deal that had incentives for performance and playing time. $350,000 to sign, another $350K if he made the roster, and $375K if he appeared in at least 55 games. Do you think he can do it? 1993 was one of the best experiences of Larry Anderson's career. And not just because the Coneheads movie came out that year. He said, the whole team is insane. And there are some guys on this team who are more insane than I am. And that's scary. He joins a team with Lenny Dykstra, John Cruck, Pete Incavilia, Darren Dalton, Mitch Williams. And Anderson's dry humor was mild compared to these guys. He said in San Diego, beer had been banned in the clubhouse after games. And that hurt morale and camaraderie there's no rules like that in philadelphia on a team with john crook and lenny dykstra (laughs) he said we love to party but love to play baseball even more we were gruff scrappy and played our ass off both on and off the field this is why the city loved us so much i doubt there will ever be another team quite like that one and that that's correct Yeah, the team was in last place in 1992. In 1993, they turned it around and won 97 games to take the NL East. Back to those performance bonuses. He made the roster, so cha-ching. He was good on the field, had a return to form after a down 1992. He pitched in 64 games, which means he won another $375,000. And his ERA plus was 137. That's the 28th best season for a pitcher over the age of 40 with more than 50 appearances. So this is a fantastic job by him, and the, and the Phillies go to the playoffs. Larry pitched in three games in the NLCS. He got a save in Game 5 and also pitched in Games 2 and 3. In both of those games, he came in in losing situations and gave up more runs. So he had an NLCS ERA over 15. Not great. The Phillies won the series despite that, and 
Larry pitched in the World Series, and he struggled. He pitched in four games, all Phillies losses, and he gave up four runs in 3.2 innings. So a disappointing end to a very good and fun season for Larry in 1993. He and John Cruck narrated the team retrospective High Hopes. This is a really great video. It's two hours long. I didn't watch the whole thing, but you do get to see the late Darren Dalton and Jim Fergosi interviewed, so it's good to see those guys. And just a a really fun and absurd bunch of people. Larry wanted to close out his career with Philadelphia. He took a pay cut to return for 1994. He had some injuries that made him miss some time, and that prevented him from hitting 700 total appearances and 1,000 total innings. And he retired after that season. So closing the book on Larry Anderson, 17 seasons in Major League Baseball, but 25 years overall of professional baseball. A career record of 40 wins and 39 losses, 3.15 ERA. And that's a 121 ERA plus. 49 saves and 995 innings. And 699 games altogether that he played in. All but one of them out, out of the bullpen. That's 118th all time. How about in retirement? Larry went right to the bench. In 1995, he was a coach for AA Reading, and he also made five appearances out of the bullpen. He was thought to be in line for the Phillies pitching coach position, but that didn't materialize. He spent a season coaching at AAA, and then in 1997, Richie Ashburn passed away, and Anderson stepped into the broadcast booth next to Harry Callis. A couple of years in, Larry Boa became manager of the Phillies and tried to talk L.A. into joining the pitching staff. And Larry Anderson said, why would I leave the booth to come down on the field and just get fired with you in three years? (laughs) Boa lasted four. Anderson's still in the booth 24 years later. In 2018, he voluntarily limited his workload as he underwent surgery for prostate cancer. At first, he was only covering home games on the radio and in 2022 only covered about half of home games, so he even cut his uh, workload further. He's been pretty outspoken about the team, ripping them on occasion for lack of hustle. (laughs) He wasn't a fan of manager Gabe Kapler. He called him fraudulent. He called out the whole team in 2021, including Bryce Harper, who would go on to win the MVP award, and he's just (laughs) not afraid to speak his mind. So I did reach out to some Phillies fans. I reached out to Dave Reuter, who wrote A Philly's Odyssey. He had the cover art that was in the style of 1988 Topps cards. He said Larry can be ornery and outspoken. He's railed against current players a lot, but in his defense, we've been lousy for 10 years. Outside of the current team, that is. And I reached out to a friend of the show, Matt Albertson, who said that there's a cadre of Phillies fans who prefer the radio broadcast to the TV broadcast and like the Larry Anderson, Scott Fransky radio broadcast, And he said, the bluntness and adherence to the old school endeared him to the fan base. I don't think it hurts that he played for arguably the most favorite team in club history, the 1993 Phillies, of course. And Matt also put me in touch with the Fransky and LA Twitter account. And that is a Twitter account that is dedicated to this radio broadcast team. And they said, Larry Anderson as a broadcaster is what most people in charge of hiring broadcasters say they want, the voice of a fan. It's passion, humor, anger, running jokes, strong opinions you agree with, strong opinions you don't agree with. And the difference is he played in the majors for 17 years. More than anything, Anderson is authentic. 
You know he cares about the Phillies, and it comes across in a lot of different ways. I've said it forever, him and Scott Fransky are the best radio show in town that happens to be calling a baseball game at the same time. And there is something very authentic about Larry Anderson. He said about fans in Philly, how can you not be honest in Philadelphia? You have to be honest with the fans. And if it hurts people, it hurts people. But I don't think that he wants to hurt people's feelings. I think he wants to just tell it how it is. I've seen this in White Sox telecasts where sometimes you have maybe a homer, maybe an old school kind of guy. And then you also have the like new school and the the more stats based. And outsiders sometimes tend to to look at the Homer, the old school, and have a negative opinion of it. And so I was looking at Larry and reading some of these comments and being like, really, you're going to criticize Bryce Harper for not running out a pop fly? But I think that it comes from a place of love with Larry Anderson and a place of, of just kind of frustration with seeing a team that that's that's failing and and the voice of a fan that is honest, but also that that can tell it like it is, but also has been there and has experienced it. So it's great to get that perspective from Phillies fans. But how about our perspective now, now that we've looked into this guy with a really long career? In 1993, Larry recorded some short segments for Philly TV called Shallow Thoughts. Of course, the Jack Handy Deep Thoughts reference there. And he'd be sitting in a field staring off into space and he'd say one of his famous lines, if the plural of tooth is teeth, is the plural of booth beef? What would chairs look like if our knees bent the other way? And he became kind of a local celebrity. He's also a fan favorite. And maybe it's just that weirdness, that willingness to just get on TV and say whatever. And he said that one of his best experiences was a fan came up to him and showed a picture of her adult daughter. And the fan said that Larry had signed a ball for her when she was 10 years old and never forgot it. And Larry would go out of his way to play catch with kids at Veterans Stadium. And he said that that was something that he learned from his dad, how to treat people. He didn't have a lot of time with his dad, but but what he learned was that you do to people as you would want them to do to you. He knew that those kids would prefer Darren Dalton or Pete Incavilia, or Lenny Dykstra, or a star come out and play catch with them. But they would also go home and tell their friends, a Phillies player played catch with me. Maybe they didn't know it was Larry Anderson, but it's a pro. There's also that link to Jeff Bagwell. And so Larry Anderson becomes this trivia question of who did the Red Sox get in exchange for hometown hero, future Hall of Famer. And so Bagwell and Anderson have this link through their career, and they developed a little bit of a friendship, so much so that Bagwell called it out in his Hall of Fame induction speech. So, so I get traded, and I, you know, I'm asked who I got traded for, and I said, well, you got traded for Larry Anderson. I said, who's Larry Anderson? So he says, oh, he's a relief pitcher for the, uh, the Astros, really good one. Um, so I have to thank Larry for being such a great reliever, uh, that the Red Sox wanted you. You did a great job with the Red Sox. And Larry used to always get, get on me when I went to Philadelphia and just say, hey, man, you got to step it up. Because, you know, you're, you're, people are not actually talking about me anymore. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I do the best I can. I play my entire career, Larry. And, okay, I'm here. Is this good enough for you that I've got enough props? And so not a lot of people can say that they got traded one for one for someone as good as Jeff Bagwell. Larry asked 
would I be that famous if I got traded for Scott Cooper? Or is it infamous? But Larry Anderson, aside from all the jokes, aside from even being self-deprecating about the trade, was really good in his own right. So good that there's an article on Fangraphs just about his slider. And it's called Larry Anderson on the slider that cost Boston Bagwell. Normally, we talk about lefty relievers playing for 20 years because you always need a lefty reliever. Larry's a righty, so he had to be good. And he was really good at one thing, and that's keeping the ball in the park. Among guys in the post-expansion era with more than 900 innings, he gave up the 10th fewest home runs, 58 home runs in 995 innings. So he kept the ball down and kept runs from scoring. His ERA plus was 121, which is 28th overall among relievers with more than 900 innings, just ahead of Raleigh Fingers and Willie Hernandez. So he's not just a joke. He was a really good pitcher. And he's an amazing character. This is a guy who overcame a childhood tragedy, and he had fun in the game of baseball for more than 50 years. And he also overcame a manager telling him, you're just not good enough. Multiple trips from the minors to the pros, and a pretty remarkable career. Persistent and then consistent, and just a great story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you'd like to come over this weekend and consume mass quantities and narfle the Garthok, you can just let us know on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.